Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Greetings, fellow Fordians, and welcome to another episode of Investigating the Impossible with Tobias and Emily. I'm Emily. And I'm Tobias. And today we have Alexander Petikov with us. He is a filmmaker and cryptozoology researcher. So welcome to the show, Alexander. Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. You guys have been doing some awesome work. I've uh, been following you guys, obviously, on social media for quite a while, and uh, awesome to finally sort of make a meeting of the mind, so to speak. <laughs> oh, likewise. Yeah, thank you so much, honestly. Like, that that means a lot. So... We really appreciate it, and certainly we uh, we share that sentiment. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, where do you want to start? I think we, since we haven't had Alexander on before, uh, I guess we should start where we usually do, which at is... At the very beginning. At the very beginning. You got it. You got <laughs> it. So but, how did you get into this? Yeah, uh, like many people in this field, uh, I was interested since I was a kid. I, I remember vividly being told the story of the Yeti when I was a child by my dad on a ski trip to the mountains with my family, and he gave me this uh, toy figurine shadow box. They made some pretty high-quality cryptozoology replicas like the Loch Ness Monster. They had a Roswell alien, Bigfoot and the Yeti. So it was that stereotypical Yeti with the white fur, you know. Oh, oh sure. I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely you know Lauren Coleman and others would uh, probably be wringing their hands, uh, <laughs> wringing their fists hearing that. But so it came with this little scroll that was like a papyrus looking thing that had a description of the Yeti and the story of the Himalayas. There's something about that setting of being in the in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and hearing that story that just mm-hmm. like I, I don't know, it's just clicked right away, and I was just interested. I was already interested in dinosaurs. And I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was younger. Um, Same here. <laughs> so I was already into, I was already into creatures, so to speak. But mm-hmm. um, that's when cryptozoology came in. From that point on, I just started with documentaries, a lot of the old shows in search of. At that time, in the '90s, you know, there was a bunch of shows like The X Files. I didn't watch all of it. Some episodes really creeped me out, but I did love that show. Yeah. And there's Animal X, which kind of was like an X-Files-ish show about cryptozoology, and they sent these people that look totally like Scully, uh, Mulder and Scully. I always mix those two up. It happens. <laughs> like, create one word. Uh, they went off and they did these cryptid searches for all sorts of stuff, like the Megalania in Australia, um, the Altamaha in Georgia, all these very obscure cryptids. Like Some of these cryptids I've only ever heard of from there. Even to this day, they were some of the only ones that have done stuff on, as I mentioned, the Megalania, the supposed giant monitor lizard in Australia, and the Altamaha, and a lot of these other more obscure kind of cryptids. But then Monster Quest, of course, and that's when I started getting to reading a lot of the books, so classics by Lauren Coleman and uh, John Green, a lot of the Sasquatch stuff. I was interested in, in a lot of the topics. It wasn't just Bigfoot and Sasquatch or Yeti. It was you know Loch Ness as well. And um, you know went from being an armchair researcher and when I was in high school, and then when I got into college and life started kind of taking off, I sort of put it in the back burner a little bit. Mm-hmm. I used to be an avid uh, reader of the blogs, too, back in the Cryptomundo, and a bunch of those blogs when there was a lot of the breaking news I remember that was like the heyday of cryptozoology online I feel like in terms of the blog sphere where it's around the time of the Montauk monster and the Georgia Bigfoot hoax in 2008 it was a very cool time you know and that's right when I was in high school so 
uh, once I got out of college and just kind of got into life, started doing a lot of video production and um, you know, professionally getting involved in that sort of stuff. And I kind of revisited my passion for cryptozoology and started watching actually Finding Bigfoot that time. And that kind of reignited the flame for me. And then I decided to go into it myself. And I'm like, well, you know, I could do documentaries and focus on these subjects. And that's, you know, I've been doing that for about five years now. And that's kind of just where that sort of took off from. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting about that and what I noticed immediately was the interest in dinosaurs and paleontology. Like, I cannot tell you how many people who are interested in cryptozoology have that specifically in common. And have told us that on this podcast. Yeah, it's the best. There's something to it. I mean, well, I guess if if you think about it, if you're into dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. you already like monsters because that's basically what they are. Right. You know, and and there's a there's there's a sizable intersection, sort of, of uh, dinosaurs and cryptozoology when you start looking into things like these these relic species that people yeah. still report. So, uh, well, Bepe, I mean, the Loch Ness monster, you name it. Absolutely. Actually, speaking of the Loch Ness monster, I wanted I wanted to to touch on this, and it seems like as as good of a place to start as any sure. uh, as far as your body of work is concerned. I haven't even seen this yet, but I still wanted to talk about it because I, I I was doing a little research to make sure we had sort of your your body of work in front of us, so I didn't leave mm-hmm. anything out. Sure. And I see Mystery at Loch Ness, a 2006 documentary. Um, 2016. I'm sorry, 2016. You're right. It's it's right in front of me too. That's unforgivable. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> right. We know this 2016 documentary, Mystery at Loch Ness. Uh, now that's interesting. Now, were were you on site for this? Like, did you go to to Loch Ness? Yeah. First of all, don't watch it. It's bad. Oh no. <laughs> it's, it's, as, as a filmmaker, it's always difficult when you look at your former works especially from a long time ago it's hard to objectively look at it i feel like i just think it kind of sucks so (laughs) i get any creative field that's my opinion yeah yeah i get it (laughs) so yeah that was basically my first sort of foray into cryptozoology filmmaking i don't know i had uh you know got out of school and have family in europe and i was spending some time over there just kind of trying to figure out what i was going to do next i was applying for a fulbright actually at the time um, so I was just kind of like in between, you know, working some odd jobs and sort of uh, traveling a little bit. And that's when I kind of went on a bunch of adventures, right? That was like right after getting out of school. And I visited Loch Ness. Uh, it was one of these places I just had always wanted to go to. And, you know, my family originally is from the former Yugoslavia, so parts of Serbia and Croatia. You know, now it's like six different countries. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I usually have a pretty decent connection over there. So, uh, you know, flying to a place like Scotland from there is like, you know, traveling within the United States. It's not that big of a deal. You know, European countries, a lot of them are the size of some American states. So it's very common to kind of travel from country to country. People do it all the time over there. So, I, you know, Scotland had just been on my list because Loch Ness, I said, that's one of the places I have to go. So I ended up going to Loch Ness for a few days and just kind of wandering around and uh, went to Inverness and uh, talked to Steve Feltham, who was the, uh, I guess, Guinness Book World Record longest uh, Loch Ness monster hunter and interviewed him and just sort of uh, didn't really know what I was doing, just kind of poked around with the camera. <laughs> that was basically <laughs> that was basically it. And, uh, and then when I got back to the U.S. in 2016, well, in 2016, I edited. So it was a lot after I got back. But mm. I decided to edit together just this documentary, and I was like, oh, I'll just put it on YouTube, you know, whatever. It's like a 15-minute long little short, nothing really big about that. I didn't really expect anything of it. And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to start doing some Bigfoot stuff next. So that's kind of the direction I went into. But 
somebody liked it and uh this guy named Seth Breedlove decided to send me an email saying, we'd like to show this Loch Ness movie at our monster event in Ohio. And I'm like, oh, cool, you know, and that's, that's where that sort of um, connection came in. But yeah, that was the first uh, the first crypto cryptozoological piece I did, just Mystery of Loch Ness, just a short on YouTube. Interesting. Yeah, and Seth Breedlove, I, I think we've met him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is a segue. <laughs> right. No, but uh, yeah, well, that's that, that's interesting because we have this, this, it's not really a theme, but but certainly there's a, a similarity between sure. some of, of your work where you, you have these films about lake monsters. And so I guess just specifically on Loch Ness, because there's been so much going on with Loch yeah. Ness over the past, you know, several years with uh, new theories coming out. I mean, everybody was talking about giant eels. And so I'm curious to know, just from your research, uh, you know, if, if you have a strong opinion, like sort of where, where you've landed as far as if there is something unusual in, in Loch Ness. So that's one assumption that, that, that we'll make for the, the sure. purposes just of this conversation. If there is something unusual in, in that particular lake, what do you think it is? That's a good question, and I, people are often sometimes surprised by my answer, but I, when I traveled to Loch Ness, it was a little bit of a letdown, I'm not going to lie. Okay. And, I mean, it was amazing to be there, don't get me wrong. Any any opportunity to travel, I mean, I consider myself beyond blessed to have seen you know places like Loch Ness, but... I think it was because it's such a major tourist area. It's one of the most visited places in Scotland, and you know Loch Ness is a huge draw. So the amount of tourism, I was a little thrown aback by that. I thought it was going to be a little bit more mysterious or, or, or like off the beaten path. But right. it's very, yeah, you know, there's a lot of museums and gimmicky tourist sort of stuff. And I guess I should have expected that, but I never really done cryptozoology stuff before, so I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I've seen in other places a similar thing with certain cryptids, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that i guess just having grown up on documentaries it's like that thing don't don't meet your heroes kind of thing where oh sure you know you, you spend like your whole life kind of seeing this place and the way it's portrayed on on tv and on programs is you know they shoot they show you only the best shots mm. they'll show you the coolest shots they got in the morning with the fog rolling over they don't show you the the bus of 30 tourists that just came in and is blocking your shot that you're trying <laughs> oh. to you know, <laughs> they won't show you that and, and i'm i'm making it sound like I'm, I'm you know kind of just complaining about it but no it was just i loved it don't get me wrong as i said but it definitely was a little bit more it was smaller than i thought too and uh, it seems a lot bigger when you look at it through a lot of these films and just the way it's depicted and sure. I, I guess i just sort of came out a little bit more skeptical i think that there's been unusual things that have happened there mm -hmm. um and you look at some of the sightings i think it's very interesting but i i don't think there's as much evidence for Loch Ness as there is for say something like lake champlain i'm sure we'll get into that at some point oh yeah but um but i do love the, the nessie mystery it's i mean it's hands down one of the most famous cryptids in the world aside from bigfoot uh, you know you say nessie and people immediately know what it is you say mm -hmm. champ they probably think like the you know baseball champ or something like that <laughs> they, don't really, they sure. don't really think of a monster so right. uh, nessie's pretty ubiquitous in terms of being known oh yeah definitely well and, and and you're absolutely right about uh loch ness i mean loch ness was a, a, a popular vacation spot i mean before Ness, I mean, you know, like be, before sure. Nessie, really. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, and, and of course, people will talk about um, 
different historical evidences for Nessie, you know, dating back right. to the, the medieval period. But, you know, when, when you look at the Loch Ness Monster uh, in, in, in a, a modern light, you know, sort of as this, right. this phenomenon arising out of the, like, early, well, not even that early, like the 1930s, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was already popular. For, for, for tourism by that time. So, uh, yeah, and you're right, which which is interesting because, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of TV, but I've, I've done some. And, yeah. Um, it, yeah, obviously, it's the the reality of it is is always a, a, a little different than what people see because the fact is, I mean, if they just showed people everything exactly like it was, uh, nobody would want to watch it, unfortunately. Right, like they... Right. Exactly, and I get that as a filmmaker. I mean, that makes oh, for sense. sure. But I, I will say this about Loch Ness: I was always really interested in Loch Ness growing up, and I think after that trip and that documentary, I was less interested in Loch Ness. And I think partially now, the you know why I'm less interested is because I've discovered Lake Champlain, which mm-hmm. is you know three hours, two and a half, three hours from where I live. Whereas right. you know Loch Ness is across the Atlantic Ocean, so sure. that's. Sure. You know, not, not I'm not dinging on Nessie or anything, but I just kind of lost interest a little bit. I, th- I think there's been so many pieces of the Nessie supposed evidence that's been kind of uh, either hoaxed or has been, unfortunately, you know, some sort of a trickery or something over the years. There's been a lot of that because it's such a well-known case. Yeah. I do find it interesting, you know, the whole connection with Aleister Crowley and the the Bullskin House. That's definitely on the strangeness side for sure. And I think that's kind of... Interesting. I know a lot of people that are more into that sort of stuff will look at that as opposed to like the hardcore flesh and blood cryptozoology type. So um, I think there's definitely a lot of interesting things there. I just kind of lost a little bit of interest after I did that initial film, uh, and that's just me being honest. Like, and to, to those Nessie investigators, you know, I promise I'm not saying that I don't believe in Nessie. I just think that I think the evidence is a little lacking in terms of um, when compared to other lake monsters, so sure. to speak. And, and and that's totally fair. I mean, as far as my my personal belief i mean i don't i don't have real strong beliefs one way or the other when it when it when it comes yeah. to nessie and i think you made some really good points because you're absolutely right when you look at the history of of sightings and, and sort of the body of of evidence that that have come out of out of that region it is rife with with hoaxes and misidentifications you know i mean going back to the the very famous surgeon's photograph which was, right. was proven to be a hoax so um yeah i mean it's it's it, it can be a little dubious and 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 i totally Definitely. get that and like the surgeon's photo you know that's uh, well even when i was younger that was still considered to be the best lake monster evidence out oh, there, yeah. and that was pre- you know, that was basically, I mean, pretty definitively seemed to be a hoax. Uh, and the, the second best, I guess, lake monster photo in the world would be the Sandra Mancy photo at Lake Champlain, which to this day has still stood the test of time, as in it's not been proved one way or another. And you know, I had the privilege to be one of the last people to speak with Sandra before she passed away and you know i was convinced that she did not perpetuate a hoax just based on talking to her and she truly believed that she saw something and that for me you know is another thing why i'm a little bit more biased i think in the champ camp now that i am in the nessie camp <laughs> sure well and I, you know honestly i think that's as good a segue as any i mean 2018 uh we got on the trail of champ mm-hmm. uh you know yep. with uh, in in coordination with uh the Small Town Monsters production company, which I think all of our, our listeners will be familiar yep. with, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, as, a, as a production company, they have a fantastic uh, body of work, which, of course, you know, like you were a, a part of. And, you know, and we 
saw and, and reviewed on the Trail of Champ when it came out, we were we were huge fans, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to me, uh, sort of in light of that first cryptid documentary that you did, being Loch Ness, uh, that you know you you went into this two years later this this other similar uh, lake monster. So for everybody else who I guess hasn't had the like the the privilege of seeing this yet and we'll get into where people can find all this stuff at the end Mm -hmm. obviously because people need to watch it but for everybody who hasn't uh uh, been able to to watch this or isn't really familiar with champ um do you have just sort of a a short maybe uh synopsis like a little bit of background on champ and uh and, and what makes it so interesting sure yeah i'll start a little bit with the backstory there and then i'll get into kind of talking about what the series itself entails and i do remember you guys reviewed it you're one of the first people to review it and I, I thank you for that obviously that was one of my first really series that i ever did and especially you know with, with small that was my first time working with small town monsters and i kind of seth kind of gave me the free reins to just do do whatever we had been talking about doing this uh you know series of some kind would it be the flatwood excuse me the flatwoods monster maybe the dover demon we were kind of bouncing ideas around and as i mentioned earlier Seth, had, we had first come into contact and met each other because of the mystery of Loch Ness film, and, mm. and you know, kind of started a friendship from there, and decided we wanted to work together at some point. And um, at the same time, I think it was it was the summer of 2017. Uh, there was uh, these awesome lake monster researchers called William Drake Guinness and Scott Martis who would go up to the lake every summer and uh, look around. And I had met Will actually at the Mothman Festival of uh, 2016 and we had kind of kept in touch and I was in touch with them on Facebook and they sort of asked me, well, you know, we're going to be doing our annual champ expedition. If you want to maybe come up with your drone and maybe get some pictures, you know, we'll take you out on the boat. And then I kind of talked to Seth and I'm like, hey, they're, they're offering me this opportunity. Maybe we could make this into something. He's like, yeah, I mean, that would be really cool because you did Loch Ness. Like you kind of started out with Lake Monster. So let's go to champ so that's sort of the backstory it kind of all how it came together was sort of funny just a bunch of pieces really fell together really well uh the fun the unfunny part i guess for me was uh, i was supposed to have a, a couple people help me out with that project and um they couldn't do it that particular first weekend so i kind of was left alone with all this rental gear and i'm like oh geez what am i gonna do mm-hmm. i just decided to do it alone and i, I pretty much was a one-man crew i did it with uh just myself and just what little assistance I had from Scott or you know, some of the other people and that, that were basically being interviewed with me. I needed help with some of the extra equipment. So that sort of set the precedent, I guess, for the On the Trail of series with that sort of rugged style. Um, but the, the series itself, On the Trail Champ, is a five-part series chronicling the Lake Champlain monster. So Lake Champlain is a very large lake in uh, Vermont and New York State, and it, a little part of it juts into Canada. It's about 120 miles long, 12 miles wide at the widest point, and 420 feet deep. That's known. That's the deepest point. Mm. Uh, there's the presence of underwater caves. Uh, it's tucked between the Green Mountains of Vermont on one side and the Adirondack Mountains of Upstate New York on the other side. Uh, as very, it's a massive lake. I mean, it, it was actually considered to be actually a great lake at one point until the other Great Lakes uh, communities complained and got that status revoked from Lake Champlain. <laughs> um, but it is one of the, I believe, 15 largest lakes in North America in, oh, wow. in uh, the United States, rather. So it's a it's a massive environment, one of the most biodiverse in North America, with over 90 species of fish. Uh, it was formerly land, or it was formerly part of the ocean. 
mm. um, during the time of the Champlain Sea, and as the glaciers retreated in Canada, that um, that made it become sort of uh, an inland sea, and then gradually became a lake. So there's actually a bunch of species of fish in the lake that adapted from uh, saltwater to freshwater. So the theory is that this creature that's been seen for centuries around Lake Champlain might be a remnant of this Champlain Sea. I mean, it's that's sort of the theory. But the series explores that as well as talking to some of the prominent investigators. Um, you know, you have uh, Scott Martis and, and William Dranginis. Uh, Will, unfortunately, passed away about a year after that came out. So Scott has sort of taken up the mantle. And I'm working with Scott a little bit more. I'll talk about them, I'm sure, later. But um, there's also a chance search, Katie Elizabeth, and you know other people that are sort of in the search, but not that many compared to, like, say, like a subject like Bigfoot. There's really only a handful of people looking for champ. Right. Well, and and I guess that that makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, when 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 you talk about Bigfoot, you know, you get sightings from all over North America. I mean, frankly, if if you're willing to sort of allow for uh, a Bigfoot being part of a, a larger uh, uh, sort of uh, con- like series of, of connected species with yeti and and, and uh, everything else, then it's almost this worldwide phenomenon. Um, oh yeah. But then you know, Champ, you've got this this one lake. Now it's a it's a big lake, and I I, I totally get that. But it's still this relatively uh, localized area. So I I, I I guess it's almost good that there aren't more people, you know out there sort of mucking about i mean well i mean we already touched on what tourism is is doing to to lock Ness. Sure. that's sort of mm-hmm. the the last thing you would need and, and speaking of actually so and you touched on this uh earlier but maybe you could go into some some more detail i mean what is it about lake champlain and and it's uh reputed monster that that sort of sets it apart like what's particularly interesting about this Oh boy, yeah, that's that's a good question. There's a lot I could say, I suppose, trying to narrow it down. So I think there's a, 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 a number of factors. I would say one, placing Lake Champlain in a category of just being, uh, you know, this incredible environment that, as opposed to Loch Ness, Lake Champlain is, I mean, dwarfs Loch Ness in size, and, and, and Loch Ness is very deep. I mean, it gets 700 feet deep plus, so that definitely, it has, that's what it has going for it. But in terms of biodiversity, Loch Ness is not very conducive for a lot of fish and wildlife, whereas mm. Lake Champlain is extremely biodiverse. I mean, there's giant fish out there. There, I've seen pictures in some of the restaurants around Vermont, you know, just people have pictures that their like, grandfather caught this uh, 12-foot-long sturgeon back in the, the 60s when they still was legal to fish sturgeon. And mm. I've seen pictures, I mean, of a sturgeon that almost the size of like a small bus i mean it was, and you have people standing around it and this is a photo from the late 1800s uh, just monster if, if that was to pull up next to your boat i mean that would be by definition a monster oh sure um so there's a huge there's a lot of it's a very conducive lake for uh, lots of various uh, species of fish and wildlife and there's a lot of marsh systems around the lake that also have a lot of biodiversity in terms of amphibians and reptiles you have large turtles i mean uh, probably a dozen species of turtles including large snapping turtles all sorts of stuff but that that's one thing that sets champ apart the second that sets champ apart is some of the purported evidence now, a lot of people would kind of negate that and say well you know eyewitness evidence is not credible you know yada yada we've heard that oh sure time and time and time again but even if you discount majority of the sightings which you can discount some sightings because 
the person really wasn't sure what it was or it was super far away that you know it could have been the uh, lake effect or a lot of the times people do see the boat wakes where you'll see converging waves that create these black humps so if you're to see that from a distance maybe that could fool the eye but you know there's people that have lived on their on that lake the entire their entire lives they've fished it they know what's out there and they see something that they describe as having a dinosaur head i mean it's probably not a sturgeon that they're seeing um, so there's a lot of interesting eyewitness sightings and then on the other side of the evidence coin you have the physical i suppose evidence the purported evidence in terms of photographs and videos so you have a couple in particular one being the sandra mancy photo which i think is uh, really interesting and a lot of people have tried to debunk it and uh basically the conclusion is that it was in no way altered in the sense that nobody took a picture of the blank lake and drew in this dinosaur looking thing mm -hmm. it was genuinely there so whatever if it's fake it was on the water Right, so that so it was not tampered with. I mean, the photo was taken in 1977, but um, as I mentioned, I had a chance to speak with Sandra Mancy, uh, uh, you know, six months before she passed away. It was the last one to interview her for a production. I spoke with her at length and really came to the conclusion that she had something happen to her out there. I, I, if it was somebody else pulling the hoax, that's I mean, the only way it could be a hoax. I do not think that she or her family instigated in any way. Well, what was. Um I guess for for everybody out there, you know, who might not be be familiar with her or her sighting, like, what was sure. her experience basically? Sure. So uh, Sandra Mancy was, uh, I believe, she was a resident of Connecticut, but she had grown up around Vermont, and a lot of the families that have lived in that area near Lake Champlain, you know, they tell stories of Champ going back. Mm -hmm. um, just, to, I guess, a preface. Uh, Lake Champlain had had a heyday of sightings with Champ even before Loch Ness was known. I mean, the, the, the serpent scare of, of Champ was in the 1870s where you had P.T. Barnum offering a bounty on Champ's head and hunting parties going out to try and find what they called at the time the great Lake Champlain sea serpent. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a similar time when there were serpent sightings across the East Coast and uh, you know, Gloucester, Massachusetts, of course, the new great New England sea serpent. So there's a lot of those stories circulating around, but there were Champ sightings uh, the first looks like newspaper report was around 1809. There was another one in 1819. And then it, it really blew up in the 1870s. And then it took like a 20-year hiatus then came back in, in the 1900s. And there's been, you know, sporadic sort of news coverage of it over the years. But there's been sightings, I mean, all in, in between those times. And there are Native American stories as well, if, uh, if you choose to interpret some of their stories of, you know, serpent in the water sort of thing. Um, so Sandra was, uh, like as I mentioned, she had grown up in Vermont or had family connections, and she was visiting there with her um, with her husband and her two kids from a previous marriage, and they were near St. Albans, Vermont. That's where it's believed. She wasn't sure exactly where it was, but somewhere around St. Albans Bay, which is this large bay in the northern part of the lake. Uh, they had kind of pulled off for a little bit. It was a beautiful summer day. The kids went down and were kind of wading their feet in the water. Uh, her husband and, and her were, I guess, prepping a picnic, just sort of hanging out, enjoying the day. And they, she said she noticed this thing kind of bubbling in the water. And she thought, you know, maybe it was divers or uh, somebody out there, but didn't notice a, a buoy, a floating buoy for divers. They usually have to put something up when they're in the water so they don't get hit by a boat or someone can, you know, go over them. That's kind of diving protocol. Mm -hmm. She noticed this kind of hump thing coming out, and she said she saw this head and neck start coming out and was just kind of um, mesmerized by it. Uh, her husband, uh, I guess she was in a sort of a state of just staring at this thing, trying to trying to figure out what's going on in front of you. She said it, it moved its head and looked around, 
And um, then her husband kind of came and was screaming, you know, get the kids out of the water. And they got the kids out of the water. And um, she actually had had a camera. I believe her husband had a camera. I don't remember exactly the, the name of the camera. But if you listen to any interview her with her on you know, any of the various documentaries she did over the years, she did many. She'll t- she will say what, what camera model was. It was very common for that time period in the 70s. Uh, telematic or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a 21st century guy, so I, I apologize to the film people. You know, uh, I'm not too familiar with that. those cameras from back in the day. Instamatic, I believe, but don't quote me on that. Um, and she, she basically, as they were frenzying to get the kids out of the water, they sort of snapped this one picture. She only got that one picture. It wasn't until they got back to the car, they kind of sat down and were sort of like, what just happened? And I, I think her son at the time was joking, oh, it was, it, we saw a 2,000-pound duck. That's what they rationalized it. And they didn't really know what they were looking at until, uh, you know, as, as our story goes, they kind of uh, they threw away the negative, unfortunately, of the photo. But that apparently was pretty common with a lot of photos back in the day. And they put that photo in with their family photo album, like Trips to Vermont. And it wasn't until a number of years later that uh, somebody had noticed it, family or, or a coworker or something like that. And they, uh, they went public with the photo and it didn't break until the 80s. That's when it was the cover of the New York Times and that's like when a big champ heyday started. But the photo was taken in 1977 or so the story goes that she told. Interesting. And so I guess, now if it's the one I'm, I'm thinking of, it, it either looks like it could be uh, like a smallish head on a long neck or maybe like a, a flipper of something like rolling around in the water. Is that- yeah, there, there's there's multiple interpretations, okay. I guess. I mean, uh, first glance, if, if for folks that want to just look it up, look up Sandra Mancy photo or something like that, Sandra Mancy Champ. Mm. Even if you look up Champ, it's one of the things that will pop up, and it's unmistakable. It's this photo that it will show the water, and there's this almost looks like a back and a neck that's kind of twisted with the head looking back over the – the, the, the hump in the water so that's and so maybe that's the back and the neck and some people speculate well maybe that's just a flipper and there's another flipper to the side mm-hmm. it's hard to tell uh, there's been you know uh, researchers that have done work into it and believe that it's actually just a log that was animated by the water and there are giant logs in Lake Champlain that get kicked up and I mean we saw just being there in September I saw a log float to the surface you know just this big tree you thought it was stationary but it was actually propelled up to the surface of the lake uh, which a lot of boaters actually have to watch out for because right. these things can kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, but they don't they don't come out very quickly. It, it's it's kind of a slow process. We just sort of noticed what looked like a tree in the middle of the lake, <laughs> which was weird. But um, so yeah, it's it's a very you know it's it's basically after the Loch Ness photo, it's the most famous lake monster photo in the world. And um, so yeah, it's it's just a very interesting piece of evidence. It's definitely the most famous evidence for Champ, and uh, I would put it in that category. You know. It distinguishes Champ from the rest, and there was a few other uh, videos and photo evidence, uh, particular two videos. One is called the Olsen video, which was taken, I want to say, in 2009, 2008 or 2009, of a jogger in the Burlington area, really early in the morning, was capturing the sunset, and he claimed that this thing kind of started swimming out of the water. And the video, it's a very weird-looking creature. It's clearly not very big, but mm-hmm. its head changes shapes multiple times as it's in the water and it submerges itself and comes out. A very weird-looking video. A lot of people have said, well, it's just a dog swimming or it was a deer. I believe at the time when the story broke, it was actually shown to a wildlife expert in Vermont who said it wasn't a moose or a deer. It was you know, something that was aquatic. 
they just couldn't really tell. They didn't, they didn't say it was champ, of course. They said they weren't sure what it was one way or another. Some people have suggested maybe it was a large turtle. That would explain the head cha- uh, shape changing, but turtles don't really lift their heads out of the water. And now there is a theory that champ might be a giant turtle-like creature. But um, it's a very interesting video. And uh, what's interesting about it, too, is that the man who took it, Eric Olson, once the story broke in the news, he basically wanted nothing to do with it and put the uh, video out, and that's about it because mm. um, he he won't take any questions about it. I've tried to contact him as well, and he just wants nothing to do with it. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of ridicule involved with releasing that to the public. And, oh, sure. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, why he would, if he has nothing to gain, why putting something like that out would be interesting but it's it's an interesting piece of video i would say it's the olsen video o-l-s-e-n champ video if you youtube um, search that it'll probably pop up and the third video piece of evidence that's really i guess the most contested more so even than the mansi photos there's a lot of controversy behind it would be the the Baudet video oh yeah so <laughs> there's been recent documentaries, you know, by a friend of mine, and I, I believe you guys know him as well, Carrick St. Oh, Laurent, yeah, absolutely. Crash Course Cryptozoology, who put out a film, and, you know, I did an interview with him as well, and uh, I tried to give him my connections there with uh, trying to get a hold of the film. When I was working on On the Trail of Champ, I tried to talk to the lawyer and get him to allow me to use pieces of the video, but there was a lawyer actually who was in possession of that video. So long story short, is 2006, I believe, was taken uh, these these two New York uh, Lake Champlain area residents from Vermont to New York. I believe it was a, um, a guy and his son-in-law that were out there fishing. You know, they had been fishing their whole lives in the lake. They didn't really believe in champ. And they had this strange incident where this thing where they had their trolling motor on, which is used to not scare fish, you know, for uh, on, like a, on a motorboat. Right. Um, they were kind of trolling and they this thing was swimming under the surface and their camera battery was malfunctioning but they managed to get piece, bits and pieces of something breaking the surface and they got one clip of it under the boat where it looks like the head of a serpent and uh, you know the flipper possibly and it's just a very interesting piece of video and the only time it was ever released to the public were select clips of it through um, ABC News did a piece on it, you know, and they interviewed a bunch of folks and they, they showed that video and interviewed the guys and you know, had an uh, FBI analyst look at it and say, I can't tell where the, the videos have been doctored. And so again, saying that there wasn't any manipulation done to the to the film or the digital video itself, you know, that whether or not there was a fakery going on, it would have to have been physical, mm-hmm. you know, if it was a hoax. So a very interesting piece of video. So this lawyer now owns possession of it and um, has been you know, basically having it under lock and key since the mid-2000s, and now it's already 2021. So I've, I've personally heard from researchers like Scott Martis and, and others who have outright tried to buy the footage for upwards of $10,000. They've been laughed out with that offer. Um, and I know uh, William Drain Guinness, who, as I mentioned, passed away, and I interviewed him about it in my series, actually got to go see the full video, and he said it convinced him that there was some sort of plesiosaur-type creature living in Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that once viewing the video, they tried to get him to sign a non-disclosure agreement to which he disagreed, but he physically went to New Jersey and watched the video at the lawyer's office, and there have been a few other people who have done the same and who have not signed the NDA, as far as I know. Um, I just know the folks that haven't signed the NDA which is really weird. Why would they want a non-disclosure agreement about just watching a film? Why would they show them it in the first place if they're not going to, you know, if, if <laughs> I, I would, you know, you'd imagine having them sign that first before they watch the film. But 
uh, I tried to contact the lawyer in 2017 and 18 and didn't really get anywhere and um, you know tried to be sneaky about it but uh, nothing worked he just basically shrugged me off and I believe the same happened to Carrick in his documentary but it's it's a very interesting piece of video and we'd like it to be released just for the sake of being able to one way or another maybe say well if it's definitely a hoax at least we can kind of rule it out but the possibility is well it's a really good hoax if it's a hoax you know we don't know that's the question is and being able to study it and the only video basically we have to work off of was somebody had uploaded that ABC story to YouTube and um that's about it. And the only, the only better copy I received was from a guy who uh, recorded it on his VHS when it aired on ABC. So that was a slightly better copy. It's still very grainy. That's it. I mean, there's nothing else out there regarding the man's, or the, um, the Baudet video, which wow. is unfortunate. Well, and, and, and how much is that lawyer asking for? Do you know? I, I've heard upwards of, you know, in, in the hundreds of thousands range. I mean, I, I don't know necessarily if that was like a direct quote, but I've heard that, you know, he said something around the, the line of, well, we wanted to be on the Discovery Channel and to get like a big production around it because I believe they had seen that uh, Elizabeth von Muggenthaler, who was a former champ researcher, had mm-hmm. this, you know, one of the Monster Quest programs and Discovery program around her research and they thought that they could maybe do the same thing and get a big payout. They were convinced that mm. everyone involved in Monster Quest and these shows were getting a huge payout. Have they show. ever talked to a television producer? Like, it was very weird. Seriously. The, guy, the guy's an entertainment lawyer, which is the weirder part of it that because you weird. think he'd be on, in tune with it. Discovery Channel does not pay people. I mean, oh, yeah. well, seriously. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> Doug Hycheck, who produced Monster Quest, I've had him on on my show that I do, and I've I've talked to him behind the scenes too, and you know he said you know well, we were you know he he really is one of these guys rare in television where he cares about the subject. Mm. He's genuinely interested in cryptozoology. He's not just <clears> in it for the ratings, but um, you know that, that that was apparently the delusion of the lawyer. So <laughs> I, I don't know we you know where he got that idea, but wow. It's unfortunate because it would it would if the video was public at least we'd have another piece of the puzzle maybe to look at or just discount entirely. That's why sure. you know it's nice to have it out there. So that that's like in terms of the video and photo evidence. There are some other photos from you know questionable sources. I'll, I'll leave it at that um, that have been taken over the years and and just people who have just kind of snapped photos in the lake. I'm not calling those people questionable sources. They're just some people who you know they see a boat wake and they say this is champ. So. Uh, a lot of that stuff can, you know, for the seasoned eye, can be um, kind of determined to be, well, this is a natural phenomenon. I can totally see what you might think is champ. And, you know, people get excited. They then the thought of a lake monster, no fault of their own, of course. They're just, right. you know, they're, they're hoping to see something, of course. We all want to believe. Um, so that would be the visual stuff. And then the other aspect would be the... Um, these supposed echolocations that have been taken. As I mentioned, Elizabeth von Muggenthaler, one of the researchers involved, had uh, supposedly captured echolocations. There, there isn't really a lake monster anywhere else that has had supposed echolocations taken, and um, other researchers as well, including Scott, have claimed to have gotten similar sort of noises by using hydrophone technology in the water, and that's used to detect what whales and other aquatic animals that use sort of underwater um, communication, that's how you detect those uh, those sounds. So that's interesting. I don't know a whole lot about the echolocation side of it, but it definitely sets champ apart. Like I said, those factors I think all play a big role in shaping what the champ mystery is and what it's become. Right. That's that's really interesting. I mean, I I guess just specifically talking about 
the echolocation. And, and, and I've certainly heard of that, you know, when it comes to the, the, the champ lore. I have to wonder, because, you know, I... I'm not as, to my shame, I am not as well-versed in lake monsters in general as, as I, I am, you know, other, other cryptids or monsters sure. or even other, like, aspects of, of Fortiana. Um, but I have to wonder, are people using hydrophones to look for echolocation in other lakes? Or is this something that's sort of unique to the research uh, in Lake Champlain? And, and that's why they're the ones finding this, this echolocation. Yeah, that's 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 something that's been pondered for sure, and I be, I'm, I'm sure there have been other researchers in other lakes, um, at Loch Ness and maybe Okanagan with Ogopogo that have looked into using the hydrophone stuff after the Champ stuff. I mean, it's not new. Monster Quest came out in the I mean the late 2000s, you know, late 2006, 2008 in that period when the Champ episode came out, and that's when the first <laughs> hydrophone stuff really broke. And I mean, the hydrophones have not they're not new. I mean, they've been around for a long time in terms mm. of. Uh, cetacean research and and other species that use uh, you know echolocation or just make noises underwater a lot of fish do so there have been other groups that have used the uh, hydrophone at lake champlain specifically i mean we even used one when we were there recently filming with chasing legends you know we had a hydrophone on of course you know uh, we, we we had to give it a try i don't know to my knowledge if it's been tried at other lakes i'm sure it has but probably not to the extent that it has at lake champlain where you had right. You know, ded dedicated people with hydrophones that knew what they were doing with hydrophones that have worked with whales and other uh, marine uh, wildlife to kind of see what was going on. And there's been a lot of controversy around them, for sure. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's it's absolutely authentic. There's definitely some questionable questionable circumstances around some of the researchers. But I mean, what subject with within cryptozoology doesn't have that when it comes to the researchers and the people involved? There's always some sort of controversies and strange coincidences oh sure uh, i think it just kind of goes it goes with the subject yeah well yeah i i i think we've all experienced some of that you know you really can't be in in sure. involved in this field and not and not uh, at least brush up against it so i mean it's it's interesting now you do mention chasing legends of course which is the uh series that uh that you produced with uh, nash hoover and uh and our friend eli watson yep. um which yes. is amazing uh, now, I thought it was interesting you guys went back to, well, back for you at least, Lake uh, Champlain for, for, for one, of those, uh, one of those episodes. So I was curious, and I, was, you know, I, I even brought this up to Emily earlier. So, you know, 2018, uh, you film and, and release uh, On the Trail of Champ. And now in, in, well, this would have been, I guess, 2020 when you guys were, were, were on location there. But yeah. what... Did anything change? Like, has your opinion evolved in uh, you know since that first project and, and and now shooting this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, Champ has become my favorite cryptid. I think Bigfoot. I like to research the most because of the accessibility, as we talked about earlier, where you know you can go wherever really and have Bigfoot stories you know whether it's in my state of new hampshire or i can go to massachusetts i can go to maine i can go to florida i can go to the pacific northwest there's going to be bigfoot stories and as we mentioned champ is so specific so since i released champ in 2018 i kept returning to the lake and my brother actually ended up going to college about 20 minutes from the shores of the lake in vermont so 
it didn't take a lot of convincing for me to go up there and visit him. And, you know, before COVID and everything, I was going up there, you know, at least once every two months or so. And we would just spend the weekend going around, visiting all the little places I didn't get to visit when I was there in 2017. So I ended up going back probably, you know, a dozen or so times between Chasing Legends and, and on the Trail of Champs. So I, I really started kind of doing my own research in that respect and, and just like, getting a feel for the area and under, trying to understand, you know, talking to people, meeting more witnesses, just striking up random conversations with people in gas stations and, uh, you know, fishermen just kind of ask them, oh, hey, what's up with this champ story as if I don't know anything about it and kind of hear mm-hmm. their story and then they get more comfortable, they'll tell me, you know, something weird that they've had happen. So I started blogging about that a little bit and writing about it and I knew I was going to return to Lake Champlain and I know I'll return again, but um, in terms of my opinion changing, it, it definitely changed a little bit in the sense that I, the more I got into it, like the further down the rabbit hole I went, uh, you just start digging. There's so much to it. I mean, there's just if you just want to focus on just the 1800s, there's so much to the champ lore and the stories. But you know, through the decades, there's there's new sightings every year. It's amazing. And you know, talking friends with people like Scott Martis, I mean, the guy is a living encyclopedia. I can ask him about. A random little town on either the New York or Vermont side. He'll send me three PDFs about this sighting that happened there and that, and something that he's worked on. Really incredible. So I kind of uh, going into on the trail, of Champ. I didn't really know a whole lot about Champ, and I'm, you know, as I mentioned, I was more interested in Loch Ness. So, uh, which is a shame because Lake Champlain was just there, but I guess it was meant to happen when it did. Uh, and having spent time, you know, with some of the researchers out there on on the trail of Champ. That really gave me an idea of what it was, and I knew I would be returning. Um, so, but from there, I sort of kind of was educating myself on the subject. And I would say, going into it, when we did um, Chasing Legends, we filmed in September of 2020. I definitely had more of an idea of what I wanted to do, and uh, you know, that episode was kind of my planning, I suppose. It was a little tough with some of the COVID stuff, right? In terms of, you know, our idea was to originally camp out on an island, and uh, you know, we had a great offer to do that, but. Um, you know, there was like a something associated with the University of Vermont and they just weren't allowing you know larger groups of like the three people to be on the island at a given time you know even though you're camping outside in the middle of the lake there was still all sorts of stuff you know but we, we made it work really well and we talked to a lot of folks and divers and, and locals and uh, there was an uptick in sightings actually in 2020 and I, I think there's multiple factors probably the largest being, you know, obviously the co- because of the COVID pandemic, right. the world was kind of shut down. But the lake itself, as I mentioned, it's it's right between Canada and the U.S. So, uh, very large parts of the lake um, where large boats would be coming through, uh, shipping goods between the Canada and the United States, and with the borders being closed down for the first time in, I mean, maybe a hundred years, maybe more. There was no large boats, and a lot of these boats would dredge up a lot of mud and muck. So the water clarity this year was incredible at the lake, and there was a lot more people probably just taking it easy, you know, uh, maybe just going to the lake uh, just to relax, or, or more people in the water. That's certainly what I've heard from the locals: was more people were out on the water. So mm-hmm. with more people and people taking the world maybe a little at, at a slower pace than a normal boom, 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 rat race kind of thing that we're so used to, you know, people just having a force to kind of sit down and, and stay put for a while. So people that have boathouses up there or, um, or summer houses up in Lake Champlain, maybe from other areas, you know, we're kind of there for months at a time as opposed to just coming up on a weekend from the city. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of factors to it. And I think that was really interesting. There was a lot of good pieces of uh, supposed photo and evidence that came out. I mean, not, not as good as the Nancy photo, but there were two separate incidents on St. Albans Bay that happened 
Um, there's one that happened probably three days before we actually went to that area in September. So it was just very interesting. So going into the Chasing Legends episode, like I said, I had more of an idea of what I wanted to do and, and what we could cover. You, know, you cover the classics. You go to Port Henry, New York and see the champ sign. You go to Burlington and see the, the Lake Monsters baseball team headquarters. But then you talk to the locals and going out with the diver who had our ROV unit where we were kind of searching and going really in the middle of the lake and then doing the night investigation. Uh, that was and, and focusing on St. Albans Bay where there was so much activity. I kind of since that time, like I said, I, I didn't really know what I was doing in 2017 and 18. And now I get, went into it a little bit more educated about, well, this is where sightings have been. Uh, and I can talk to people like Scott and other people on the ground who know what's going on. So the network kind of grew from there. Interesting. Um, you know, and, you know, lest people think that really all all you ever do is hang out on, on Lake Champlain. Now, you guys went for, for chasing legends. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I think that sounds like, like a lot of fun. I would do that. But for chasing legends, you guys went all over the place, really. I mean, I'm from, what, Arizona in search of the, the Mogollon monster to uh, Louisiana for the, the Rougarou and the... the Massachusetts Puckwudgie. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and what's interesting about that to me, too, is I, I think at least sort of the, the vibe I get is when you're talking about Lake Champlain, you're talking about something that is likely, if if it exists, uh, is, is more likely to be sort of a, a, a flesh and blood, uh, previously right. un, undiscovered species. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you're, you're looking for Puckwudgies. And so... Yeah. What I, I guess what for you is the 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 real division there. You know, like do you think that I guess the 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 best way to put it, like do you think that folkloric creatures or or sightings that are you know involving more paranormal elements or or things like that, do you place them in in the same category as something like a champ, for instance? Yeah, a great question. I love I love the way the conversation is going. I do just want to close out with Champ, and I could spend all my time at Lake Champlain. I feel like if if I if I wanted to become another Steve Steve Feltham kind of character, just I wouldn't have a problem with that. But <laughs> I have a, I have a lot of other interests. So um, you know, Champ is just one of my favorite cryptids. It's like I, I always know it's kind of there and it's right. close by enough that if I get frustrated with Bigfoot, as so often happens with the insanity of the Bigfoot community, I can just say whatever forget this I got champs still there sort of thing um, a lot of broad interest but uh, I'm now a member of the LCZI the Lake Champlain Zoological Inquiry which is a research group basically founded by Scott Martis and Carrick St. Laurent and a couple of other folks Jeremy Sanborn is a member as a diver as well and I'm now a member, so is Eli Watson, our friend Eli, mutual friend, uh, Nash sure. Hoover. There's a bunch of people coming into that fold that we're interested in continuing what Scott and Will used to do. And, you know, Will back in the day when, when he'd go up to Lake would take his boat and they would research, you know, for a week at a time out there. And our goal is to kind of continue in, uh, in that legacy of what Will and Scott did. And obviously, you know, Scott is still with us, luckily. So mm -hmm. uh, we want to, you know, kind of work with him and he's the, he's the brains and, we all bring different talents, whether it be as filmmakers, you know, within the technical side or a diver, you know, with a diving experience, trying to kind of do more research. Instead of just covering Champ as a film subject, I want to do a little bit more research and see what we can't prove or, 
or, or find out about the lake. So that's that's something interesting. So that's the LCZI. There's a great website for it. People want to check it out. But with Chasing Legends, what was so interesting about it was we started out with that puck wedgies you mentioned. And the puck wedgies are these small, I guess, troll-like or imp-like uh, Native Native American folklore in, in the area of the Bridgewater Triangle. Of course, you can't mention the puck wedgies without the larger Bridgewater Triangle right. story, which I've been... I've been sort of talking about for a number of years being in New England and you know not being far from the Bridgewater Triangle. A number of my close friends and researchers, like John Horrigan and and Paulino, have been into the Bridgewater stuff. And uh, Lauren Coleman as well. I mean, Lauren named the place. <laughs> um, so a lot of those folks I've known for years, and I've done some Bigfoot stuff with the Bridgewater Triangle. But that was my first time really looking into the puck wedgie myth and. Uh, Nash and I sort of been talking about just doing an episode about it. We, we, we were mutuals online. We both were young dudes that were into filmmaking and cryptids. And he's like, we're thinking about doing an episode of the Puck Wedgie. Would you want to be a guest investigator or slash, you know, people who are involved? Or would you want to like talk about it as an expert? I said, well, I'm not an expert in Puck Wedgies. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything <laughs> about it. So I'll point you in the right direction. So, uh, you know, we set them up with people like John and Paul and, and others interviewed in the show that kind of know, they, they know the folklore in the area. Yeah much more so than I. I'm not going to pretend to, to talk about stuff I don't know. Um, so it started, that was three days before Massachusetts went into a COVID lockdown that they flew out from Minnesota. And it was the weekend before COVID lockdowns began. So it was like the, the last bit of normalcy, I guess, in the pre-COVID era <laughs> that we, uh, you know, in, the, the episode was released fairly recently. And you see us walking around downtown Boston and nobody has masks on. And people were like, well, what, what, what's going on here? So this was pre-pandemic. <laughs> to those that didn't figure it out <laughs> right so um yeah that was much more uh, you know and what i liked about the season was we had like two sort of more flesh and blood although you know a lot of people with the bigfoot stuff would say there's certainly that paranormal element i'm not saying one way or another there sure. is i i'm more a little bit in the flesh and blood camp but i've heard stories from people that i deem credible that have told me weirder elements with the Bigfoot stuff, you know, orbs especially. I've even heard flesh and blood Bigfooters saying, I don't believe Bigfoot is, you know, uh, paranormal at all, but I've seen orbs in my research area. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. But as you mentioned, Champ, definitely more flesh and blood, although there are also some, you know, people on the more uh, uh, paranormal side with that too, but we won't get too into that. Um, <laughs> so it, I kind of felt like, you know, it was the two that were flesh and blood and the two that were much more, Metaphysical with the Rougarou and the uh, the Puck Wedgie. So the Rougarou too, I mean, is one of these things that a lot of people, there's this dogman phenomenon right now, which right. I don't really, I've not done much research and I don't know a whole lot about it. I like the classic werewolf stories, so the Beast of Jevedon and sure. the Lugaru, which, you know, the Rougarou is clearly a derivative of. You have Bray Road and some of those early cases, the Michigan dogman, obviously you guys are up there in the Midwest. and Oh, yeah. And, and you know that those kind of stories, a lot of Germanic and Scandinavian folklore in that area. I'm sure with the people that settled that area originally, brought some of those stories over. Just like the Cajuns brought the story of the werewolf, the Rougarou from sure. Acadia, which you know now is uh, eastern parts of Canada and the French-speaking parts of Canada. So it was really interesting going into it that way. But we went all over the place. We. You know, we, we initially we hoped to do the first season, you know, wrap it up by the summer, but obviously COVID pandemic, we weren't able to travel out to Arizona until July. So we went from March to July, basically just kind of not not doing a whole lot. Obviously, everything was so unprecedented for everybody. Um, but 
we went to Arizona, then we went to Lake Champlain, and then finished off in Louisiana in October with the Rougarou. So it was really interesting because it was a little bit of, um, as we talked about, you know, that paranormal or flesh and blood divide where you know, go to Champ and you say, well, something could be in this lake. Whereas you, you have a story like the Rougarou, and they said, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I don't think there's an undiscovered species of dog hominoid creature roaming around the swamp but at right. the same time you know as a physical being but clearly these cajun people we've talked to i mean they lived in this environment for a long time who am i to come in you know with a outsider perspective and just tell them it doesn't exist i mean sure uh, same thing i guess applies to sasquatch and other folklores of aboriginal peoples you know whether they be native americans or cajuns in that case you know people that settled that area or other parts of the world you know the yetis places where people have the folklore you know who are we to go in and tell them no, this this doesn't exist because of you know science or whatever. Um, you know we have to respect the cultural uh, aspects. So that's that's how I tried to approach the Rugaru episode and the Pukwudgie as well because that was a Wampanoag story originally of little people. And obviously we know there's a lot of little people stories with a lot of folklore. There aren't just Bigfoot in North America. You know in terms of uh, you know Native American folklore, there's definitely right. little people stories all over the place too. But um, we, yeah, we tried to cover a little bit of both because I think, you know, you, 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 I wouldn't consider them to be in the same categories. As I said, I'd put Champ and in, into more of a flesh and blood category, whereas the Ruger would be much more on the spectrum of, is it really a cryptid? Is it more on the paranormal side? But like some would argue it might be cryptid. So I think it's all still covering cryptids, but just because there's definitely a variety there of, right. um, you know, what what might be behind it. I mean, with the Puck OG, I kind of came with the conclusion, I don't know if, there is a Pukwudgie. I know there's a really evil history in that part where they're reported the Freetown State Forest within the uh, Bridgewater Triangle. There's been murders. I mean, infants found murdered, people found beheaded, satanic cult activity, and, you know, like real uh, demented stuff, mafia killings, you know, the, between the Irish and Italian mobs that were going to war between Boston and Providence, Rhode Island, you know, the gangland slayings and all kinds of really dark history in that forest. And the Pukwudgie story, maybe that's just like a little bit of a, a convenient cover for all the creepy stuff that's gone on where people have had tragic um, things happen to them. I don't know, but um, it was really cool to kind of push myself as a as a researcher and step a little bit more in front of the camera. I've been doing that a little more than mm. before where I was kind of strictly just behind the scenes. Right. Yeah, no, I, that's that, that's really interesting. And, and you're right, when it comes to stories of, of little people, certainly in North America, they're all over the place. I mean, here in, in Wisconsin, we have the, oh, what are they, Mabaguasi, which is a uh, Ojibwa term uh, for basically what sound exactly like Pukwudgies. They're just like little hairy dudes that run around and and um and sort of haunt like rivers and forests and stuff and, right, right. and, and when you talk about the 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 rougarou and you know or dog man or, or werewolves or, or sure. anything else that sort of sits in that realm of uh impossibility when it comes to the natural sciences you know you're i think you make a good point uh just because it doesn't necessarily fit in in the the paradigm of our understanding of biology or something. It doesn't mean that it it doesn't necessarily exist in some way. And, and we sort of see that with things like Mothman, for instance, where you have yeah, this right. thing flying that really just has no business flying. Just it makes no sense. And 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 you know, similar to the the, the Rougarou or, or or Dogman, when people talk about uh, sort of their these bipedal creatures with leg structures like the hind. The, the uh, uh, hind legs of a, a, a canine, yeah. and like they have, n they have no business standing up on two legs. I've seen my dog try to stand up on two legs, and he's not good at it. 
You know, his legs aren't designed for that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is interesting in that way because you sort of have these biological impossibilities, and yet you also have really compelling testimony. So I think that that's the best approach is just to sort of, of uh, 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 listen to people, you know, like respect Definitely. their culture, like you said. Yeah, yeah, and I think what's really interesting about, you know, like the Pukwudgie specifically, they have gained sort of a notoriety within the little, you know, little people, the humanoid little creature troll type things where they've become part of the Harry Potter world. So they're kind of known a little bit. And it's so interesting because it is part of that Bridgewater Triangle folklore. I mean, that area has just gained such a reputation for Bigfoot, pterodactyl-like creatures, uh, haunted truckers. Native American ghosts. I mean, there's a really interesting history in that area just in general. So the Pukwudgies are basically just one part of that story, but they are probably one of the more notable ones, at least in terms of like the cryptid and Fordian circles. You mentioned Pukwudgies. People kind of know what you're talking about right away, whereas you might mention something more obscure. I mean, Pukwudgies, Menehune, stuff like that. It's sort of known, but when it comes to the Ruguru, what I really thought interesting was you, you kind of can trace a lot of, like I said, folklore back to the culture. I mean, you're, uh, France in particular with the Beast of Chevadon, it's one of the most famous werewolf stories in the world. And you have Loop Guru stories in Quebec, which is these sort of, uh, you know, the, the French people that came to the New World. And then that those stories translated over to the Cajuns, you know, the Acadians that went to to Louisiana after being ethnically cleansed basically from the eastern parts of um, Canada by by the British that story evolved and it sort of took on a, a form of where it's uh, not necessarily a physical being it's something that manifests when you're guilty of something but you become the Ruguru you don't need the full moon to become the Ruguru mm -hmm. there's also the idea that if you don't practice Lent you know you will you can become the Ruguru there's the idea that it can't pass it can't count past 12 so the way to stop a Ruguru is uh, you throw 13 objects on the ground it has to stop to count them there's a lot of those sorts of very folkloric things which i think are mm -hmm. really neat and um you know just because like we said it's, it doesn't seem to be physical doesn't mean it doesn't exist i mean right. there, there are clearly stranger things than than we know i mean I, i've experienced ufo stuff i've seen ufos that i just i just i don't know how to explain it other than say well it's a ufo by definition of the word right. so i mean I think it's it's um, it would be unfortunate to completely close off the possibility that there are you know just flesh and blood cryptids out there. I think some cryptids are completely flesh and blood. Talking about something like a thylacine, I don't know if there really is a paranormal element to it. Uh, whereas you know something like Mothman, a lot of people in the UFO circle will say that's not really cryptid-like, but it's still sort of is a cryptid. So. It's definitely interesting. I think the Vruguru has a spot in there for sure, but it's a very fascinating story. And man, that I think, as Eli mentioned in, in the episode that about the Vruguru, you know, why would they make up a story of some kind of a dog-like creature when everything else in the swamp is already trying to kill you? You've got <laughs> alligators and right. and and mountain lions and uh, water moccasins and all sorts of stuff that will kill you anyway. It's not like the kids need a reason to be kept out of the woods because there's already enough danger. So. You know why create a, a werewolf story sure i think what's interesting about that too is uh, just looking at the folkloric elements of the ruguru there are so many parallels with with uh say the folklore of like vampires for instance like literally anything can make you like make you a vampire apparently after you die like if you're born with red hair or you're not baptized or <laughs> you know you're just a mean person you might become a vampire uh, and it's it's so interesting that, that you see that with things like the the, the Rougarou too, and and I think that it's 
it's valuable to 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 look at the the folklore that people associate with it but be, because i think the narratives that people apply uh well for instance as in investigator i think a lot of what we end up doing or or at least what we should be doing is doing our best to sort of strip the narrative from every witness experience to get to the actual story underneath so there's a story when it comes to the Rougarou. like there's there's something sure. real like there's a core phenomenon there whatever it is and then you have all of these layers of folklore on top of it which are, are just fascinating and you can see literally uh, across cultures and 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 across you know monsters if if you will uh, people applying like this this same folklore uh, to to these 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 monsters to this phenomenon or these these seemingly disparate uh, phenomena so you know it's yeah it's just fascinating uh, to me th there is such an interesting part especially when you talk about Louisiana and New Orleans and that area that has been such a mishmash of cultures uh, even just European cultures over the centuries you know uh, between the Spaniards having control of it, then the French, you know, the French were there, and then these French people that had settled Eastern Canada were suddenly put into this area that was controlled by France, then suddenly became part of America. And you had people from the Caribbean and Africa mixed in with the slaves and the Creole culture versus the Cajuns. It's just a melting pot. So you have, like, New Orleans is so known, is one, probably more so than other cities in North America, is known for vampire stories, of course, mm -hmm. as well as voodoo, you know, with a lot of the the Haitian and the Creole influence there were the voodoo stories and you have the Rougarou. So, uh, I mean, I, I've always been interested in that from a folklore perspective. I've never really been much into the ghost and the vampire stuff. Um, I've been more always into the cryptids, I'd say in general, but having, you know, experienced UFOs and stuff, it's kind of opened my eyes a little, but I would still say I'm, I'm much more comfortable in the middle of the night in the middle of the woods than I am in the, uh, like a haunted building or something. I just, I don't know. I don't like to mess with forces. I don't really understand, so to speak. Sure. But um, I've always been fascinated by the stories of vampires and black magic. I mean, with my own roots in Serbia, uh, vampire is the only word in English that is actually derived from a Serbian word, which is just vampire. And, you know, it was taken into French, vampire and English, uh, like so many other languages, borrowed words from French, and that's where the word vampire comes from. And the entire eastern part of Serbia, which borders Romania, back into the times of the Ottoman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, you know, you had Vlad the Impaler, uh, known as, you know, Count Dracula, basically, who was this warrior, and there's a lot of famous vampire stories in eastern Serbia, and there's these, these black magic stories in a lot of these mountains and in these mountainous areas. So I've always been interested from that, like, cultural perspective, just from my own background, and hearing those stories of of weird things out there, you know, when I visited when I was younger and everything. So, you know, that's not necessarily, like I said, cryptozoology, but it's definitely sure. Freudiana. It's all it's all sort of interconnected in some ways. Um, but uh, it's just interesting going to these places like New Orleans just so, and Louisiana, just such a unique, you know, there's nowhere else in the world like it, where you have all these different cultures that collided in this swampy environment where you have alligators and all this other stuff out there. Um, and it's just really interesting. But no, you're, you're absolutely right about the, the larger point about just the, the connection, I think, with a lot of these places with some of these strange stories and the cult, the cross-cultural phenomena that you have with, you know, 
paranormal things, shapeshifters or uh, little people, all these sorts of stories. It seems to be pretty universal, even you know, taking it back to Bigfoot, the, the amount of Bigfoot-like stories you have across the world, whether it be the Almastis or the Yowies, the Yarens, the Sasquatch, the Skunk Ape, the Grassman, the Wood Devils of New Hampshire. I mean, the list... <laughs> goes on it's right. just it's endless at that point oh definitely um so we're coming up on our time here but we have reached the point in every interview where just i realize <laughs> i have been doing all of the talking because i always do so i like to i like to ask emily if if she has final question and i yeah i kind of i guess have um we didn't really get to touch on the lions of the east at all this episode at all which sure. obviously we'll need to have you back on to do that that's i mean a fasc- <laughs> fascinating phenomenon yeah um you know and it it i mean mountain lions seem pretty probable like our own dnr denies it um oh, i don't yeah, know where yeah, i was getting I at that story fared far fairly well <laughs> <laughs> right um i guess my question is um, with creatures like that and like the thylacine, what do you think of their existence being possible? Yeah, I think absolutely possible. I mean, I think it's not, with something like the thylacine, I don't know a lot. I mean, we've seen in recent weeks a lot of, I would say, typical cryptozoology drama when it comes yeah. to sure. supposed evidence and jumping the gun kind of thing. And, uh, you know, people like Forrest Galante, who I respect and I think is a very interesting biologist, I mean, he kind of brushes up against cryptozoology just by what he does with trying to find extinct species. And I think if you look at the classical form of cryptozoology, as, you know, purported, uh, you know, by the, some of the originals, Ivan Sanderson and, uh, you know, Lauren Coleman, especially, you know, that there are. Cryptids can also include animals that are previously thought to be extinct that are still alive. So the mountain lion would fit within that. Now, the, the eastern mountain lion in places like the Midwest and especially the East Coast have a very big, a lot of people are into it that aren't into cryptozoology. It's like a separate subject. So I thought of it as a very interesting gateway kind of, because you can be into cryptids and into that or not into cryptids and still be into it because you probably know somebody who's had a sighting or knows a hunter who claims, I saw a mountain lion even though they're not supposed to be here and our fish and game or wildlife department tells us it's not possible. Right. Um, but they're starting, they're starting to come around and admit that it is. And I mean, and when it comes to New England, I have, a no, I have no doubt that there are mountain lions here. Now, the, the question is whether or not that means breeding populations. And a lot of people will agree it's probably not likely there's a breeding pair yet. But at some point, when is a female going to follow a male out from the Dakotas or from the Midwest that they begin to move eastward mm-hmm. with a lot of conservation and people moving more into urban areas? And a lot of these rural areas are becoming lesser populated and you have lots of food sources i mean places like new england were clear cut 100 years ago and now maine and new hampshire are the two most single forested states in the country i mean there's endless woods to hide out there and i uh, no doubt in my mind that a mountain lion were to be there as they have and dna has shown that they are in places like new hampshire and massachusetts at least just passing through i mean let alone the the mountain lion that was killed an hour north of New York City in, in the most densely populated part of Connecticut in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in school in Connecticut at the time. I remember when that happened. I was like, this is not the place I would expect to find a mountain lion from South Dakota being killed, you know, within an hour's train ride of Manhattan, you know, the, the, of all the places it could be. So <laughs> I think it's absolutely stuff like that where you have uh, extinct species or species that are, uh, I wouldn't say the mountain lion, obviously is not extinct. They're very well established in the um, parts of the Midwest and, and uh, certainly the Rocky Mountains westward. That's like their known range. But they were one of these species that was the most adapted 
um, basically aside from black bear, to living in almost every environment. I mean, you can find mountain lions from the swamps and of the Everglades to the swamps of the south, to Louisiana, to the southwest, the deserts, the high desert, the redwood forests, the Rocky Mountains, the eastern forests, the plain states. They were everywhere, and they were adapted to all those territories, and they thrived in those areas, and I think it's only a matter of time until they do again. And uh, I believe that there's just a lot of distrust with authorities, and, um, and this could be a whole other topic, obviously, for a show, as, as, as we mentioned, but um, definitely, in my mind, uh, there's going to be more cases in the future of mountain lions popping up in states along the eastern seaboard, and certainly in the Midwest. You guys are just geographically closer to established populations, so... It's only a matter of time until you find you have a, a trail camera picture of cubs, uh, you know, or kittens with uh, with a mother mountain lion in a state like Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania, something along those lines. Oh, sure. I mean, it's it's already well established. I mean, through like trail cameras or you know, yeah, local news following yeah. one through the middle of Milwaukee. Sure. You know, that we, yeah. we definitely yeah. get them through here. cell phone and, and pics. That's what I think too about it, like being so mainstream that it's not. It, it fits within cryptozoology, but it's not. Like there are plenty of people, and I've often experienced this at paranormal and cryptid events where I talk to people in the New England area and like the most people always, they know somebody who's had a mountain lion story. Or, uh, you know, I mean, I even met one of the guys I interviewed in the film who uh, was a police officer in Connecticut who happened to see that very cat, which has now become very famous, the one I mentioned in 2011 that was killed. Mm. He was a, a police officer, saw it cross the road in front of him a few miles from where it was killed a few days later. You know, he told fellow officers, and they all kind of said, no, no, you saw a bobcat. He's like, I'm 100% certain I saw a mountain lion, and then it was killed near that location. So how many more stories do you have like that where there isn't a body, though? He right. was probably the only one that's had it confirmed. But, yeah, so it's it's just, I think uh, it is a matter of time, and it's just it's a very fascinating topic. Oh, God. We obviously completely agree with that. So, I mean, everybody, definitely, when you get a chance, check out Lions of the East, which is the, the, the documentary by uh, Alex that, that we were just referencing. So, yeah, I think that we're pretty much coming up on our time. We'll definitely have to have you back, though, because, oh, boy, is there still a lot of conversation oh, gosh. To, to, to be had here. <laughs> Two or three definitely. more episodes at oh, least. Easily. And that's not even counting the stuff you haven't even done yet. So, oh yeah, there's a lot coming up. I'll say that. I, well, speaking of, what do you have coming up that, that we can look forward to? Absolutely. So, um, in terms of big projects, I'm working on uh, you know more stuff with Small Town Monsters. I had a chance to you know during kind of right after in the summer, it was our first sort of adventure post lockdowns. You know, we were out in the wilderness, so we were being super safe as as safe as we could out there in the Adirondacks, uh, the film called On the Trail of Bigfoot, which is sort of, it, On the Trail of was, you know, started basically by On the Trail of Champ back in the day. Right. It's been On the Trail of Bigfoot and On the Trail of UFOs, and now uh, there's going to be multiple more films coming, including On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Journey, which is coming out in April, which chronicles Seth and myself and, and um, Mark and Andy Matsky and, and other small-town monsters guys as we go through the Adirondacks and talk to uh, researchers in Whitehall, New York, Paul Bartholomew, Steve Coles, Jonathan Wilk and the Squatchusetts guys in Western Massachusetts, Bruce Hallenbeck. It's a really awesome film. Um, it's, it's like a journey into... It's, it's putting the East Coast Bigfoot basically on the map, I think, in a way that hasn't been done. That's going to be coming out in April. Nice. And accompanying that, I'm starting another series with small-town monsters called Beyond the Trail, which kind of as it's hinted in the name, it's beyond what goes on on the trail of. So it's 
It's very similar. It's kind of like an accompanying piece, but it's all standalone. So you can watch one or the other and kind of continue or not continue. Um, and the pilot basically for it is going to be a case, a Bigfoot case I've been on and off involved in in southern New Hampshire that um, I sort of fell into my lap. And some of the folks that I've interviewed that have been involved, including a property owner and some of my own experiences. And um, off of that then, in also in April, we will be working on, on the Trail of Bigfoot, the Discovery, which will be again, part of the On the Trail of series, where we're going to be going out to Washington State and working with the Olympic Project uh, with some of their nest sites and some of the evidence they've had. And we're going to be one of the first crews to document their um, their work that they're doing out there in the Olympic Peninsula in, in Washington State. So we're going to be working on that, but I'm also going to be doing a Beyond the Trail of episode. And uh, Eli Watson, our mutual friend, is going to be coming up there with me, and him and I are going to be spending some time with Shane Corson, who's a member of the Olympic Project, so the main crew is kind of going to be filming with the group and we're going to be going off and doing our own thing deeper in the wilderness and trying to do some remote wilderness camping and see what we can have happen and just kind of document the way. So that's those are some of the big projects on the way. Um, I have, of course, my YouTube channel, Sasquatch Out of the Shadows, where I do a weekly live stream every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern and we have lots of guests on and we talk about Bigfoot and I put out videos occasionally on that channel as well. Excellent. And so uh, for people who are interested in finding your work like they want to they want to watch your documentaries and and see what you've been up to what's the best way for people to find you sure the best way to find me is my website that's petakovmedia.com p-e-t-a-k-o-v media.com uh, there's links to pretty much everything i just talked about there including all my social media and everything so if, chances are if you want to find out about it or even stm stuff just go on my website and um you'll find a link or a way to get there somehow. Awesome. Uh, I encourage everybody to. Uh, Emily and I are both you know, big fans. Uh, every documentary we've seen that you've done has been excellent. Yep. Uh, can't recommend them enough. So, uh, you know, Alex, thank you again so much for, uh, for joining us here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's been awesome. All right, everybody. Until next time, stay weird. Keep it weird, everybody. We would like to give a special thanks to Andrew Frisk and Dylan Burnett for their help in producing these episodes. Thanks, guys.